Uh, man, awesome to have Simply Three with us. So thanks again, guys, for that. They'll be back. Yeah. Uh, we love kids, but we also love them getting some of that special training and that special teaching, right? We love children. I say we like clap them out, but that's not because we're excited they're leaving. I just want you to know that clarity. Hey, but we do cheer them on because it's great. They're going to, to some teachers that are going to teach them more about Christ. Can we clap them out? Yeah, let's, kids are dismissed. Awesome, high five, high five, yep, don't, don't miss me. High five, high five, high five, yep, there you go. Well, it's so good to be together. If you're new here, we're excited to have you with us. Um, ushers, if you'd come forward. Uh, this is a part of our service that if you're a part of Community Church, uh, we see this as a, a very, very big part of our worship expression. And we do not feel obligated to give. And Scripture actually says, uh, in a paraphrased way, it doesn't really count if you feel like you're being arm-wrestled by God to give uh, or by the church, uh, that it's an expression of thanks. In the Old Testament, they used to call it first fruits because the Israelites had an idea they'd give first of what they had. And so what we want to do uh, is make sure that you understand if you're a guest, boy, don't feel obligated, but if you are... A Christ follower, if you call this church your home, please, uh, you're, you are welcome to participate in this. So let's pray. Father, it is great to be blessed and to be provided for in light of the world that has so much uh, struggle for water, for food, for shelter, for clothing. God, we are overwhelmed and blessed. And God, help us to be generous with that and help us to learn to thank you for that. And so would you take this offering as an expression of thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to give you uh, an update, and uh, many of you have gone to the doctor before, right? Hopefully some of you have gone to the doctor. Okay, no one's gone to the doctor. This is, we're going to change the whole direction of the morning. Uh, when I go to the doctor, uh, they give you a battery of tests, right? And they're these simple kind of checkups to... To, they don't say you're healthy, but likelihood, if things, these things go well, you're looking pretty good. The, the most disturbing one, right, is when you walk right in and it says, get on the scale. How many of you have done that and thought, crud, I wore heavy boots or a big sweater? And you're like, wait a second, wait a second, that doesn't, it can't count. They take blood pressure, right? They take the temperature. And for centuries, I think leaders in the church, we want to know if we're healthy because we don't know if heart change is happening. And we see scripture talks about the fruit of what that looks like in the lives of people, but it's so vast and so powerful. How do we know if we're a church that God is moving in and the spirit of God is changing hearts and lives? And so we used to call this the financial report. Uh, we've changed it just to the quarterly report. Uh, it includes finance, but it includes so much more. And these are just a few things to show you. There are many more. In fact, if we took, we could take weeks of a service to just pop, uh, plop people up here and say, let's talk about life change. What's God done in your life? What's God done in your marriage? And it would probably be way better than some of these numbers. But at least this gives you an idea of, wow, it seems like God is doing some great things in and through us. So in this fall, which we grab our year into four different sections in quarters, so from September, October, November is this quarterly report kind of review. Uh, there we go. So uh, first, I'm going to give you these, I think I'm going to do that. There we go. Uh, two verses just to have you think about. Proverbs 11:25: a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And then Proverbs 22.9, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Now, you may immediately think that it's finance and stuff. Uh, Jim and I were talking in a little interview we did for some stuff later. We were talking about most likely the most valuable commodity that we have, the most valuable thing that we hold on to most is our time. And I want you to know that what's starting to show throughout this quarter is that we're, 
God is growing the numbers, but really it's the generosity of, of investment in time. It is going to be financially, but that has had a powerful effect uh, on people. And God makes a lot of promises when we become a generous culture that way. So let me just give you a few things. First of all, our Sunday attendance. We do take attendance. Um, we just kind of get a, a rough number. We have a rolling average of about 1266. That's without children. We're growing. Uh, just so you know, if you've probably tried to get into services, if you come a little bit late, um, no shame in that, but it's difficult to find a seat, right? Um, we're not a sloped floor or no balcony, so it's tough to find. We're growing. It's part of the reason we have the village and overflow, but uh, we're seeing that as kind of a marker of, wow, some good things are going on. Baptism. Um, this season, I don't have our three-month numbers, but from 2015, We've baptized, that means 115 people made choices to uh, step into the water and make an outward proclamation of what's going in the inside of their life. That's, that's an amazing stat that we could clap for, 115 people. We talk a lot about being connected to our church, but we also say you want to be along, like belong to the body, and what does that look like? And you know, church isn't reduced just to Sunday attendance. It is the life of the body of Christ. We are not defined by a campus. We're not defined by buildings or programs, but we are the body of Christ. And so what does that look like throughout the week? That's where group life starts to really show what's, how are people moving into relationship with one another in the different groups. We have 70-plus leaders that represent 40-plus different groups, though some are large and some are small, which reach 700-plus people. That's really almost about three-quarters of our people uh, that attend. So that's a great number, and that we're seeing God do some great stuff there. Last but not least, uh, giving. Uh, believe it or not, it is one of those markers to show what a church is doing and, and how it's giving. And uh, about 75% of people that attend here on a Sunday morning give at least once a month. Now let me tell you before you clap why that's such an amazing number. When I talk to pastors or leaders around the country, that's one of the things you talk about is, are you meeting budget? And as programs grow and more people come, are, are people becoming more generous with what they have? Uh, this, the national stat is about 20 to 30%. Community, you're at like 75% are, are giving something, which is amazing. That's an amazing stat. So there you go. That's for you. So some of you uh, uh, bean counters, you'd love to know where we're at, so I thought I'd give you something different, an income trend, and show you a little bit what's happened. In 2012, there's kind of the pacing. That's what happens throughout the year at about 125000 uh, That was in 2012. You see a jump a little bit in 2013. Now you see 2014. Look at the differences. That's starting to increase. And then this season, um, 2015. So... Uh, we're just seeing some great trends in giving, uh, very exciting. Overall, our income that we budgeted for, uh, projected out for this first three months is 575000 uh, We actually came in a little bit lower, uh, which is pretty normal, part of the trend, uh, about 483000 which is about 91000 less. Honestly, December is called our makeup month, and that December giving, as you saw that spike, usually surpasses that and goes past budget. So... Um, no worries there. Expense, this is great about your staff. Uh, the projected expenditures is about 574000 with change. Actuals, they spent less, five sixty-two. So can you give it up for your staff who was pretty frugal? Yeah. And so some of you who are numbers people and budget people, we have about a $2.3 million budget. Man, it's amazing to watch A, God provide, but how tight and close that is. I mean, you think about it, we prayerfully project out. We don't know. And it's amazing to see God work that out every year. So we just feel very blessed. Um, Ripple. Uh, we've been raising money for our Ripple projects, and there's multiple projects in that. We're at about $1.3 million pledged. Um, that comes in at about $23,000 a month in cash. We're at about 456000 in cash. We've spent quite a bit on a lot of the first pieces to Ripple. Um, I'll probably give those in our next report to give you more of an update. Uh, and so we're starting the Giving Tree Food Pantry here and with our, our care center. So that's exciting that we're launching that in January. You can clap. Yes, yes. Um, and 
what I want you to, for clarity, because we talked about raising 800000 the reason we feel like we're close to going, uh, we're, we're probably about 150000 more. We know that December is going to provide a large part of that, uh, most likely in year-end giving. But we also, because we projected out what we're going to get in cash by June. So we'll still be debt-free on that project, um, which is awesome, and we love, we love being debt-free around here. Amen? All right, signage. Uh, I wanted just to forewarn you what's happening with signage. We've found a lot of interesting problems. If you're new to our church and you pulled on to the long driveway or came in that side, we've had more people confused, wait, I thought I came in the front and they're in the back or on the side or, wait, what is front, back, or side, right? So we're just as confused as you are. So we've come up with a signage plan that's going to be, you're going to start to see that uh, show up right before Christmas Eve. Uh, The roundabout actually uh, obviously is there. Many of you have used it. We are actually putting a, what's called a campus sign to just mark our community campus on both sides. We are going to do this one here right before Christmas Eve, uh, and then we have to wait for this one in the spring because we have to fix the retention pond, and so we'll have to do tear up the driveway. So that one will come in the spring. That sign looks like uh, this. This is just a basic rendering of that. It'll say community campus. And so it'll say east, you'll see that in, or I'm sorry, west, you'll see that, um, why in a minute? But we knew we needed secondary signage because we're not just a campus. Uh, We know that most people have referred to us, do you go to community church? And so that's why a little bit of play on the words. We're going to put directional signage, much like you see in a hospital or a college campus, that allow for people to know where they're going. Uh, that's been the biggest problem about people wander into a door here and say, I don't know where this is. So here's our solution. These signs will have um, the, this, most likely all of this on it, been obviously depending on where it's placed, it'll have different directions. But West Entrance, Green Bay Community Church Services, a large part of traffic that comes in here comes to a service on Sunday. It will show that and show our full name. Our offices, Green Bay Community Church offices, uh, children's ministry, many people, uh, they're coming to a children's ministry event, whether it's VBS or just a Sunday service. And then you see our auditorium or our gym, which is that room, this room right here. North entrance, care center, giving tree, loading dock, uh, east entrance, chapel, and children's ministry. Um, on the back, we think come back soon is the nicest instead of see you later or don't come back or I don't know. We're going to figure out some nice thing to say to people as they exit and then where they're going <laughs> Not where they're going, but um, where they are in directions. Do you know what I'm saying? That sounded terrible, didn't it? I'm, I totally apologize for that. That was a slip. Uh, so the other thing we're doing is to mark our building, and we're going to actually put lit sign uh, west on the one side here as you come in here, east, and then because the giving tree and our care center is going to be located as an entrance on this section of the property, we didn't want to say back hey, go to the back to get care. Uh, We want to call our sides of the building then east, west, and north. And so this will be the north entrance to our facility, the east entrance, and then the other two areas that we most trafficked here are auditorium and chapel, and we're going to put lit letters on those those sections of the building to tell you where you're you're at. So this is um, the signage. This is where we're heading. You'll see that pop up, and hopefully you'll enjoy that. Paul says this to the church in Corinth, love this, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. I don't know if you know what's going on in the last, really, probably 12 months of our church's life, but as you are out about in the community, there's probably not a day that goes by that I don't bump into somebody saying, guess what, I went. I went to the women's event, or I went to this thing called the garage, or I'm in a group, or I'm in FPU, and it's, they're meeting you. And, and more and more and more, the church's impact and ripple effect is happening throughout our city, and that's exciting. And that's you guys, so great job. God is doing something in our church, amen? You guys can clap for that. Yeah. So one of the things that I am very passionate about and then obviously very much realize is I want us to be grounded as a church. Uh, As Jim and I have talked, and I met Jim a couple years ago, and he's been with us uh, a few times already, 
One of the gaps I see in the church today is not knowing why it believes what it believes. I have a lot of people that I meet that say I'm Christian, but yet have not read their Bibles cover to cover, don't understand who Jesus really is, as we looked at Matthew 16 in this Mind the Gap series. Don't understand where God calls us to holiness and to be set apart and not to live like the world. And while we may debate interpretation, it is our heart and passion to help train up a church culture, not just to sit in Sundays and be entertained. We want to train you. Now, can I warn you that you've had Jim here before, but he's an LAPD cop, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of detective shows you've watched, right, that give us a lot of impression about these guys. But what I love about him, he sees the world this way, and it's made his presentation about truth so unique. I was telling some people, they were so, we had about uh, 200 people for about three and a half hours, him go through God's crime scene. And we just said, we've been so indoctrinated into detective shows and crime shows, when he starts talking that way, it's almost like a click, we get it. And I'm excited to have this the morning to really wrap up our series, Mind the Gap, that all religions are not the same, and really talk about the distinctives and what's important for us to get right when we say we're Christians. So you guys give a great community church welcome to Jim Wallace. I introduced me as a cop because I'll tell you, uh, I think the first service, did we scare half those guys out of here? I think we did about halfway through. We scared half the people out of the room, but we'll try to be a little kinder this time. I want you guys to open your Bibles if you've got one, and if you don't, there's these uh, places on the side that have Bibles. Grab one. I grabbed one also, and I realized right away that you guys need to get large print Bibles because I'm so old, I can't read, but I happen to have this stand here, so I will read to you now. <laughs> I can see. No, I won't do that, but it's pretty bad. Uh, I want you to turn to John chapter 3 with me, because there's something that you guys have been covering in this Mind the Gap um, series that I think is illustrated really well in John's interaction with Nicodemus, right? The guy who comes in the Jewish leadership in the middle of the night, doesn't want to be seen by any of his buddies talking to Jesus, and then he gets there and he makes a couple of statements. Let's just go to chapter 3, verse 1. I want to read to you what Nicodemus says. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So you already get a sense that Nicodemus knows something about Jesus. The question is, how accurate is his understanding of Jesus? And he comes in and he says, he, read it with me again. It's in the second verse, I think. Um, yeah, second verse is he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know what? We know that you are a teacher who's come from God. Isn't that interesting? So Nicodemus already knows that Jesus is something, but what? Now, Jesus could easily have just kind of said, that's good. But he does it. He spends the next 15 verses kind of demonstrating to Nicodemus that belief that is not good enough. You need something else. So this is Football Sunday. Let's go to um, the football verse, John 3, 16. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Go back with me. Jesus says, it's not believe that. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. You can believe a lot of things about Jesus, but... Belief that is very different than belief in. Belief in is the thing that Jesus is trying to always nudge Nicodemus toward, right? Belief that is good, but belief in makes all the difference. So I'm going to illustrate this difference to you using some equipment I brought from work. Now, I'm going to preface this because, yeah, I have my, we're a three-generation family in law enforcement. My dad preceded me for 28 years. I was there for 26. My son Jimmy's been there for about four and uh, so we are, you know, you call our agency and you ask for Jim Wallace. There's been somebody there to answer the phone for the last 54 years, okay? And he'll be there for another 30. I know that kid. He loves his job. Of all the people who love law enforcement in my family, Jimmy is by far the most over-the-top, ridiculous, loves the job. But I, I'm going to use some illustrations. 
that we're, you know, we're just coming on the heels of some really horrific shootings in our country. And so you always run this risk of using illustrations about law enforcement that can be offensive. But cops are by nature offensive, so get ready. <laughs> but honestly, I want you to see a difference, okay? This is not about um, trying to be um, salacious or trying to be, um, trying to be outrageous. This is really about trying to make a point because there are so many parallels between what we discover in law enforcement and what we learn as cops, what we learn as detectives. The number one will help you investigate the case for whether Christianity is true, but it'll also help you think clearly about how you need to go forward in order to protect the young people in this room. Because folks, I'll tell you right now, if there's one thing we're in the business of doing, it's protecting the innocent. That's what you pay us to do, to protect and serve. And so we want to be able to do that. But you as a church, brothers and sisters, we have been called to protect the innocent. And young people right now are under a full-fledged assault in the, in the worldview that surrounds us. And if you haven't been paying attention to that, you're not paying attention. We're losing about a percent a year. A year. Go forward 10 years. I can tell you what the numbers are going to be. They'll be the same thing we were 10 years ago. 10% more will walk away from the church. We can do something about that. I want to try to illustrate that for you by illustrating the difference between belief that and belief in and talking about the most critical thing that Troy's been talking about with you, which is accuracy. Why does it matter how accurate your theological understandings are? Let me illustrate it for you. I brought a few vests, which is why this lump of junk is sitting here. This is a ballistic vest. We wear these. You probably, if we're in Wisconsin, probably most of you guys own one of these, don't you? In California, that's not the case. I'm from California, okay? So I bet you probably are familiar with what these are. Let me, let me put it on for you. It's, it's, um, they're different than when I, when I first started. When I first started, they had a straight panel ballistic vest. Now they wrap around your sides. They didn't used to wrap around your sides. They used to just be um, straight panel, which is really silly if you think about it. Now, they're made out of Kevlar, okay? So this is a Kevlar vest that will stop rounds. We know they stop rounds because we put them on the range, on a target, and we shoot at them. We use different rounds, and we can see what goes through, what doesn't go through. Most rounds won't go through it. Even the large rounds, though, we have a trauma plate, which will keep the larger rounds from going through. My son this year, for Christmas, asked his mom and I, hey, uh, for Christmas this year, I'd like ceramic panels that will stop AK-47 rounds. I said, that is the most bizarre Christmas request I've ever heard in my life. But if you're a parent and your kid wants more ballistic support for his vest, you're like, whatever the cost, right? It's a crazy request. That's what we're getting. We're getting ceramic panels for his vest. Now, when I started, these were straight panels, so they used to go straight down on the sides. But that was kind of silly if you think about it, because back in those days, they used to train us to blade ourselves to the suspect. So if a suspect's facing you, rather than face them in an isosceles triangle, which we do now, we used to face them by blading ourselves to make ourselves thinner, and we'd cross arm like this. But the problem, of course, is if you're facing your suspect, yeah, you're thinner, but you're giving him the one area of your body that's not protected, right? And for some of us, like now at this age, my sides are actually bigger than they used to be. So I don't want to that being seen by the, the suspect. These are different now. So now they're wraparounds. This is pretty close to the one that Jimmy wears. And he wants actually a thrill over carrier that'll have two ceramic panels. Anyway, we, we know these work because we see them work. We test them. And we've all done that. We've all seen that if you're a cop. Now, I want to tell you a story about a guy that we, um, I work officer-involved shootings, too. If you're on a homicide team, I've been on homicide teams for 15 years. And we also are responsible for officer-involved shootings. That means if an officer gets involved in a shooting, we have to go out and interview the officer and walk through the shoot scene to see if the shooting was legitimate. Nobody likes a bad shooting. Nobody hates a bad shooting worse than a cop. Nobody hates cops stupid more than cops. Okay? We just don't. I've got zero tolerance. So I want to know, is this a legitimate shooting? One night I got out on a shooting where the guy was waiting for me, the officer was waiting for me when I got there, and he told me a story. He was the shooter. He told me a story about how he had pulled over a drunk driver, and the drunk driver was weaving in the road and eventually got pulled over into a parking lot. And when they got to the actual parking lot, he walked up on the car because he had stopped finally. And the window was rolled down. And he could smell alcohol coming out of the car. So he told the guy, come on out of the car. He's going to do what's called an FST, which is a field sobriety test. Guy gets out of the car and he stands and faces the officer. And the officer realizes right away, ah, this guy's not your usual citizen who's drunk. He, this guy's a bad player. 
And sure enough, this guy had been released from jail about two weeks earlier. He had assaulted somebody, and he was out, and he had a semi-automatic pistol in his waistband under his untucked shirt. The officer had no idea that he was carrying that, that, that pistol. Now, back in those days, if you got caught with a pistol as a parolee, you would do a year, a year lid. And, and so he knew that just being caught with that pistol was going to put him in jail for a year. So he had to make a decision. Do I want to go to jail for a year? Or maybe I'll just shoot this guy. And he decided to kill the officer because he didn't want to go to jail for a year. So now the officer is looking at this guy, and he's standing about as far from the officer as I am from this stand. So he's standing about this far away, and the officer is smart enough to say, I'm going to pat this guy down before I do my FST. So he tells the guy to turn around and face away from him so he can walk up and do a pat-down search. But the guy, when he turns around halfway, he pulls his gun out, turns back around. Now he's facing the officer, and he's pointing the gun at the officer. Now, obviously, the story ends well because the officer is telling me the story, okay? So just so you know, it's got a happy ending for the, story, for the officer, at least. So he's pointing the gun at the officer. He's too far away to do a takeaway. He says, I'm stuck here. I didn't see it coming. I was surprised by it. I'm standing. I didn't even have my hand on my pistol. I was just like, ah. So I said, what did you do? He said, well, I knew I was wearing my vest. Think about that. He said, so I just tensed up my stomach muscles. I figured I'd take the first couple of rounds. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to kill me. I'll return fire. Think about that for a second. I tell that story to cops, and we're all going, oh, gosh. I mean, that's really crazy. But in that moment, he went from belief that to belief in. Because he had a belief that the vest would stop the round, but now he's going to trust it to do what he thinks it can do. Folks, that's about accuracy. That's about having an accurate belief in what the vest can do. If you don't have an accurate belief in this vest, if you don't trust it, if you're not sure because you've never tested it, you are not going to trust it now when push comes to shove. You're just going to run or duck or try to get your hand. You're going to do all kinds of crazy. He just stood there and just responded quickly. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Accuracy matters in what you believe about things like this. Do you think our students have that kind of confidence by the time they go to university? But heck, you know, to be honest, it starts in junior high. By the time you're in junior high, you're already having questions. I wasn't even a Christian until I was 35. I had more questions. I was the kind of guy your kid would not want to meet because I was convinced I could convince your kid to believe what I believed. And I'm just going to tell you, our students don't know that the Christian worldview can, can take rounds. They're not sure that it's true historically, scientifically, philosophically, in every way you can shoot rounds at it. They're not sure it's true. So because they're not sure, they can't stand, they won't stand in it in a tough situation. Why do you think we're doing a series like this? Why do you think he's taking all the time to show you the difference between these worldviews? Because you need to know why, number one, why, why this is unique. And number two, why this is true. You need to know, have belief. By the way, you can never have this kind of belief in until you first have this kind of belief that. You might say, well, I trust in Christ. You haven't been tested. I know a lot of folks who say they believe in Jesus. I'm taking those folks to jail all the time. Because when push came to shove, difficult situation in their life, they did not trust in this thing they said that they believed in. Why? Because they didn't really they hadn't really pushed it. They hadn't really examined it that critically. And now when it was no longer convenient, they walked away. They did something they shouldn't do. Make sense? That's what's the difference between belief that and belief in. I want to go one more level with you. I brought another vest. This is a different kind of vest. This is a raid vest. This has changed quite a bit in the last few years. I used to wear this in the late 90s. I was part of a surveillance team. And we were working undercover in Los Angeles County, which means we were wearing shorts and we weren't cutting our hair or shaving our face for four years, okay? I had a neighbor across the street from me who didn't talk to me until I got transferred to robbery homicide and I cut my hair and shaved. Seriously, I lived in this house for four years across the street from this guy and he never came over and said hello until I cut my hair and shaved my face. I think it's because he thought I was a different person living across the street. Somebody new had moved in, I think. But eventually, he came across the street. Now, I used to wear this. I used to put this on my passenger side seat of my undercover car because it's all black, and you couldn't really tell what it was. And your ballistic panel comes out of this, and it, you can sew it in. It's actually not sewn in. It slips into this Velcro lining. 
you can see here there's a place to put your ballistic panel in. So this, this raid vest, when it's all equipped, is everything you need. You can be in shorts, but as soon as you put this on, you're good to go because you got everything in here. I'll show you what I mean. So if we had a search warrant we're going to serve or somebody had to go to jail right away or something bad was happening right away, we just take this thing off the passenger side seat and we just throw it on. And then you just really take your Velcro and stick it on there and you're, good, you're ready to go. And everything you want is basically on your vest. I mean, I, back in those days, I even had a holster that my gun would be on my vest. So everything is on this vest. Your radio is on this vest. Your magazines, your handcuffs, everything's in the vest. Makes it quick, right? And I can tell you a story about this that I'll never forget because it was just, it, it seemed funny to me at the time. Looking back, it may be not so funny. We had a search warrant we had to serve on a guy who was uh, dealing dope in a house, a residential neighborhood. And our informant said, when you go in that house, you make sure that you watch his hands if he's sitting on the couch. Because on the, in the couch, between the cushions, he would put a gun. So if his hands are down by his sides in the couch, make sure you have his hands because that's where he's going to draw a gun from. So we said, okay, whatever, that's good. We had a five-man entry team. All of us had been SWAT trained for years before we were on the SWAT team, before we got transferred into this detail. So we all knew how to make an entry. And a five-man team, do you know what you call the first guy who comes in the door in a five-man entry team? I did this one time in Canada. And I said, do you know who the first guy is who comes to the door? And someone in the first row, he said, sucker. That guy's called the sucker. <laughs> He's actually called the scout, okay? That's the first guy through the door. And the next guy behind him is the backup. Then you have a guy behind him, a guy behind him, and the last guy is your rear guard. And we all have different responsibilities. The scout's job is to face the primary target and to have eyes on the primary target. My job is to come alongside him to one side. I have this quarter of the room. The guy behind me will come off to this side. He has this quarter of the room. My responsibility is this part of the room. I can't get caught up in what this guy's doing. The scout has him, right? So I have to keep my eyes on this side because someone could pop up or pop out of a room. So that's my responsibility. So we get in this one house on the search warrant. And sure, the scout's usually the shorter guy on the team because he's easy to see over. Right? So this guy comes in, and he's the scout, and he starts screaming at the suspect because the suspect is doing exactly what the informant said. He's sitting on the couch. His hands are by his side. So he starts screaming at him. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. And the guy looks at him. Now, I'm against my peripheral vision, okay? Your memory can play some, some, some games with you a little bit, but this is all my It's happening really fast. But he was not going to move, and it was clear to me that Jeff was thinking about doing something because he, this guy was not responding. And he's not sure. If you don't respond long enough and you're reaching that, you don't know what you're going to pull out of that thing, right? So Jeff, I could hear his voice kind of escalating. Even the pitch of his voice was escalating. And I'm alongside of him. And as soon as I get even further alongside, I can see more of the suspect. I can also catch the side of Jeff's body in my peripheral vision. And I can see that his whole vest is black because he has forgotten to turn down his patches before he entered the room. Big difference. Now, I had my patches down, and when I got alongside of Jeff, and he could see me and Jeff, this guy immediately surrendered. Why? Because now he had an accurate view of who he was facing. Because when Jeff first came in the room, he could be anybody. You know, we looked terrible in those days, okay? We all had long hair and beards or goatees or some kind of ridiculous handle. Whatever you can't, whatever you're not allowed to do as a cop, you do those for four years, right? So I had a huge mustache. And sure enough, he wasn't sure this is cops, this is more guys down the street are doing, trying to do a dope rip. What is this? He thought he was maybe facing more bad guys. Once he realized that we were the cops, he gave up immediately. And that's because he now had an accurate view of our identity. I can't tell you how many times patches or a badge will save your life. And the reason why it will save your life is because you're stupid when you're in the first five years of your job. I'm sure my son still does this, where you just run into every call. You don't wait for backup. You think you can handle everything on your own. And you get in the room and you find out you got five drunk guys, you know, brave on alcohol, who just think they can take you. And they look at you like, you know, your backup's still four minutes away and you're by yourself for the first four minutes because you're an idiot. But you're wearing patches and a badge. And they look at your patches and a badge, and they go, okay, you know what? Hmm. This stuff represents even more guys, 50 guys, 60 guys, who are well-trained, well-equipped, well-prepared, very committed. And they're going to be here in a few minutes. So do I really want to mess with this guy right now? Probably not. And they just give up. Your patches can save your life. Now, how many people do you think, how many young people do you think are willing to wear their patches 
when they go to university or they go into the workplace or they go into some setting that is hostile to the Christian world. You know, I don't know how things are here, but I can tell you in Southern California that most universities in Southern California are not a friendly place, not a welcoming place for the Christian worldview. They're just not. You know, my son, I have one son as a cop. He was at UCLA. His undergraduate work was in, in psychology. That's not a friendly place. That's not a friendly campus for a Christian worldview and even a soft science like psychology. My other son, David, he's, a, he's now in med school. I, we came from UCLA, okay? I went to UCLA. Jimmy went to UCLA. My son, David, went to USC. If you know anything about Southern California, you know why that kid's a communist, okay? <laughs> yes. Don't shake your head at me, Troy. Okay? So he's in his third year of med school, but his undergraduate work was in microbiology, hard science, at the at University of California, Santa Barbara. Also not a friendly college, friendly campus to the Christian worldview. If you're going to hold, I mean, that, those are campuses that I see constantly. Students do not want to wear their patches. I am so proud of my patches. I still carry my ID everywhere I go. I, I'm, I'm going to have it till I die. They have to pry this thing out of my cold, dead hands. Because I'm proud of what this represented. So I wear it. I don't know. I mean, our Christian, young Christians are really actually all that proud. They're not sure that their team is that deep, that well-equipped, that well-trained, or that committed. And you know why they wonder if we are? Because they've been asking us, their parents, questions we can't answer. You know what I'm talking about, right? Because you already, if, there, if I, this is a typical room like this, I could ask how many of you know somebody in the college years or from 15 to 30 who has walked away from the church and they're yours, or they're your nephews and nieces. There's somebody in your extended family. We see this happening all the time. It doesn't need to be that way. I was an atheist until I was 35, and I became a Christian because of the evidence, not in spite of the evidence. We have to make a decision. Accuracy matters when it comes to your identity. Not everyone has given their life to Christ. Not everyone I arrest who says they know something about Jesus is actually a Christian. I have Muslim friends who have an inaccurate view of Jesus. They believe Jesus is somebody very, very important, someone even of a higher prophetic standard than, uh, than uh, Muhammad. But they don't believe Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. They have an inaccurate view of Jesus, and that because of that, they're not in a safe position. Let me illustrate the last point. This is where it gets a little more dicey, right? Because anytime you pull out a, a handgun at a, at a church service, you're not quite sure what to think of it. So I've got a fake one, okay? It's a fake gun, folks, all right? It's blue. I don't think they're making guns that blue any. I don't, think I don't think they look like this, okay? And it doesn't really shoot. It's the training guns we use when we train. It's got a place to put your flashlight and all that stuff that's kind of cool on it, but it's not a real gun. But I think it's important to make an illustration. This is the Sam Brown that I was issued in 1988. They've changed them quite a bit, but we don't even use half the tools. You might as well have, like, rocks and sticks in this thing when I started, okay? Now we have a completely different set of tools that cops use. But I spent the last 15 years working in detectives, so I only had to put this on on parade day. Right? That, one of the old guys, he's still wearing his leather. Now most of these are nylon. My son still has one leather Sam Brown that he wears on Sundays because he says that's the Lord's day, so he polishes his leather and he wears leather on Sundays. Now I have not purchased a new one. This is 1988 version, so I'm going to put this 1988 belt on the, 19, or the 2015 gym, okay? It's not going to be easy, but it's possible. Okay. Now, there's nothing in here. I've just taken all the good stuff out. You know, now we actually have all kinds of stuff that we don't have, didn't have then. And this gun is just the plastic gun. But I want to show you four things. I said three things last service. Four things that drive me crazy about cop shows and movies so that if you see these stupid things on a show in the future, you will change the channel. Okay? <laughs> All you people like cop shows, I know you do. And they are so stupid. <laughs> so are you ready to hear this, the four stupid things that cops do on cop shows? Here's the first one. Have you seen this ever on a cop show? <laughs> Finger in the trigger. Okay, we don't do that, okay? We don't do that because we take this very seriously. This is a toy, I guess, for purposes of illustration today, but it's not a toy for us. It's part of a very specific force continuum. We have to deal with force issues all the time. We, we only get called if something bad is happening. You never call us to say, hey, I wanted you to come out because I'm having a really great day. You guys don't do that, okay? You call us because you're having a really bad day. 
And then when we get there, we got to fix something. And sometimes that involves some level of force, and we don't want to do that. But it does involve force sometimes. And we have a continuum. There are times when my, my physical presence alone can control a situation. There are times we've got to use my voice, next level. There are times when you've got to use your fists, next level. I'm about to pull out my baton, next level. Use mace, next level. Taser, on your, on your non-gun side, we usually carry a taser. I didn't have a taser when I did the job, but my son has got more junk on his body. I don't know how he could sit in that car comfortably. Seriously, he's got more doodads and toys and takes out all, I mean, it's crazy. But it's a force continuum. If you end up taking out this, you're at the top of the force continuum. This means that I've realized that the, if I don't pull this out, I am going to die. So we don't use this at the lower levels of the force continuum. Hey, move your car. Get your car over there. You see, I said, get that, move that car. You ever see a cop do that? No. You will never see a cop do that. That's a voice continuum, not a gun continuum. Got it? Okay. So we try to only pull that out if we feel like we're at that level already. So if I got this gun out, it's because I'm afraid that what's around this corner is going to kill me. I only point this at things I'm willing to destroy. I don't want to destroy the ceiling panels. I could care less about the ceiling panels. Second thing that drives me crazy is this. You ever see this in a cop show? Really? I don't want to shoot my feet. I'm not afraid of my feet. Right? Why would I, I, don't even bother to pull it out if you're going to point it at your feet. I'm going to point this at a target just a little bit above, it's called low ready, maybe a two or three degree so I can get target acquisition really quick. So I'm going to point it just, just below where I can see what's happening, and then when I'm ready to go, I'm going to pull it up. Make sense? You know how long it takes to get from here and to, get to, to actually acquire a target in your sights? Oh my gosh, you're dead by that time. So you're only going to pull this gun out under a certain... So it's about having an accurate view of what we really do. And if you don't see this anymore, please get out of the movie. Just don't even pay for it. You ask for your money back. I want to show you the third thing that drives me nuts, which is the difference between cover and concealment. Cover and concealment, right? This just makes me crazy. There's a big difference between concealment and cover. I can hide behind that drape, and it'll conceal me, but it won't cover me. You shoot through that drape, it's going to hurt, right? Because it's not cover, it's just concealment. But how many times have you watched a movie where you got four cops who are standing behind a drywall, there's a door here, and they're talking, okay, now, I'm going to go to the left, you go to the right. Sound good, sound good to you, Jack? Yeah, sounds good to me. Really? Meanwhile, the guy they're trying to get out of the room is on the other side of that drywall where he could easily just shoot through the drywall of the voices he hears, and we're all going to be dead. Why? Because drywall is good concealment. It's not good cover. You have to have an accurate view of what is... Do you realize how many times a day you make decisions that are based on accuracy? You make choices all the time about all kinds. Have you realized you have spiritual choices to make too? And they matter. These things matter. These things keep me alive. They are guarding my temporal life while working as a police officer, making good, discerning choices about your theistic views will protect your eternal life. So it just drives me crazy when I see people do that. I'm going to give you the fourth thing, all right? The fourth thing I see is how many times, I want you to pretend, okay, you, you work with me on this, all right? I want you to pretend like you're the bad guy, and this is a wall that goes all the way to the ceiling, all the way to the floor, okay? So you can't see me right now because I'm behind the wall. And this is a cover wall. This is a cinder block wall, okay? So you can't see me and you can't shoot at me. How many times, in, by the way, this is open. So over here you can see me. Got it? Okay. So how many times in movies do you see this? I'm trying to find the bad guy on the other side of the wall and this is what I do. <laughs> okay, we don't do that, all right? I do see that in movies all the time. Guys will be right up against the wall, kind of peeking around a corner. Oh, my gosh. That's just so, first of all, if you have your, your, your uh, elbow bent when you're holding a semi-automatic weapon, you're going to jam that thing right away because you have to have it locked out so you, the slide will come back. Or it's going to go back halfway, and you're going to jam it. But that's another issue. But more importantly, you can see me before I can see you. You tell me when you can see me, I'll tell you when I can see you. Pretend the wall goes all the way here, okay, so you don't see my bottom. Here we go. Ready? Tell me when you can see me. Now you can see me? I can't see him yet. 
but he can see me. Well, why is that? It's because there's four inches from the top of your head to your eyeballs. And those are four inches you don't want people shooting at, okay? <laughs> you just don't. What you want to be able to do is you want to be able to turn this corner in a way. I, I can't see him until all this is exposed. We pie the corner. You know what a piece of pie looks like? It's got a point in the center, two long lines, and it's got the arch, the crust. This is a piece of pie. Here's the center of the pie, two long lines, an arch. So what we do is we walk around this corner, we pie the corner. So I don't need to stand right up against cover in order for it to be cover. It's cover if I stand back here. It's still cover. So what I can do is I can curve this and pie the corner and get an eye on him before he gets an eye on me. As long as I don't walk with my elbow out, because then he'll see me first. I don't walk like this, <laughs> right? That would be bad. Otherwise, I'm okay. So I'm gonna, basically, I'm going to give him as least profile as I can. I'm going to turn my feet toward him. I'm just going to rock it. Now, even if you can imagine this, I'll pull it down a little bit. So as I rock this corner, I'm going to basically... Okay, I have your shoulder right now. Do you have me yet? I have more of your shoulder. Do you have me yet? He still doesn't have me. How about now? Dude, I got a lot of you right. You don't have me at all, right? This is how you actually can see a suspect before he can see you, because you're not going to give him the four inches at the top of your head. Make sense? You cannot accurately... Folks... Do you recognize that everything we do in law enforcement is about accuracy? Even when we train to shoot, we train for accuracy. I'm going to give you the sad, kind of gruesome reality of shootings. If I'm involved in a shooting, I can hit my target, even fatally. It may take him 30 to 40 seconds to die. And in those 30 or 40 seconds, he's going to kill me. Because he's still shooting back for those 30 or 40 seconds. So sadly, we have to train what are called failure drills. So you get involved in that first shooting, and that's, that's like high adrenaline. You're shooting all over the place, but at some point, take a deep breath, and we do a double tap. Two to the heart, one to the head. Why do we do that? We want to put not the guy injured, not fatally injured. We want him to stop shooting at us. Nobody wants to talk about the nasty reality of how important accuracy is in law enforcement, but it's really important. Because it may be the only thing that gets you out of the room alive. You know what the goal is for police officers every day? It's to go home every night. That's it. And if you walk up on that guy who's going through a red light like he's just late for dinner, you might not go home tonight. But if you walk up on that guy like he's running from a robbery and he is armed, you walk up on the car differently. So every time I walk up on a car, I assume that guy's trying to kill me. And that guarantees that I will go home at night. Now, the problem, of course, is that in the first five minutes of that contact might be kind of rough for the guy in the car, right? Because you're not going to be treated like a civilian. You're going to be treated like a bad guy. I get that. It's not because I don't At the end, I'm going to apologize and make sure, you know, you understand where I'm coming from. But I have to start that way because I want to go home. It's about having an accurate view. It's about training to shoot accurately. Do you know, realize at some point, I have to go in the room after that guy. At some point, I have to step away from the cover and actually get in the room. At some point, I'm going to see him and have to go in the room after him. Now, when that happens, how am I going to be safe? I can't take the wall with me. I wish I could. Now, we have ballistic shields. They're just lame. I think they're, I think they're lame. You eventually, you've got to get away from your ballistic shield. And when you do that, the end of this gun is going to become your cover. Because if you understand how to accurately use your weapon, it can save your life. It can cover you. Have you ever heard somebody say, cover me? What do they, do they mean? Do they mean throw a wall in front of me? Throw a wall in front of me. Can't do that. No, just cover me. How can you cover them? You've got no cover. Because this is your cover. Do you know how many students we send into universities? They have no idea what to do with the Christian worldview. It's not a gun you beat people with. It's not a gun you shoot people with. That's not what I'm suggesting. But truth is never comfortable. Jesus said it. I didn't come. Trust me, if you follow me, you think they're beating the dog snot out of me? They're going to beat the dog snot out of you worse. That's kind of a paraphrase, cop paraphrase from <laughs> New Testament. But the point is, this, it's, it, it is... There is an offense to the nature of the gospel because it argues that other views are wrong. But if your students aren't prepared and trained so they can use the truth accurately, the way we're trained to use this accurately, stand by. The goal is to get home every night with the truth still intact. Not to be getting beaten up 
and lose your faith because you don't know why it's true. Why do you think that he does a series like this? Why do you think, you know how rare you have a pastor in your congregation who cares enough about you to do a series on what this dirty little word in Christianity we call apologetics? Oh my gosh, what a geeky thing. Apologetics, all you people like apologetics like Star Trek fans for crying out loud, right? All geeky people who think that stuff is interesting. Why do we do that? Why do we write apologetics books? Do you think there's any money in apologetics books? Let me tell you, okay, I have a pension. Thank God, okay? That's how I pay the bills. There's no money in that. You do this kind of work because you think something has to change. And accuracy matters. He has been teaching you about Christianity for years. You just spent four weeks talking about everything else. Take this stuff seriously. Because your life depends on it, your spiritual life. I just took these off for crying out loud. Hang on. Your spiritual life matters, and it's dependent on this stuff. I'm going to ask Bobby to come up here with the worship team. But I want to finish by saying one thing to you guys. You know, unfortunately, cops do have a bad attitude. We do. And you get cynical doing this because the entire world around you gets divided up into two categories broadly, sheep and wolves, right? Sheep and wolves. That's, that's not good to see the world that way. But I think sometimes Jesus saw the world that way too. Have you noticed how in, in the Gospels, Jesus is always describing you guys as what? How are we described as his, as his followers? Sheep. Do you realize how dumb sheep are? Seriously. I mean, sheep, sheep are dumb, right? They have no idea they have a wolf problem. They don't. They wake up one morning, there's one less sheep standing next to them. Where's Jerry? I don't know. He was here yesterday. Yeah, he got eaten last night, you moron, because you aren't even paying attention. You're too stupid. You're dumb as a rock, okay? They don't know they have a wolf problem, and they hate the other animal that happens to be in the yard for a good purpose, which are called sheepdogs. Every yard's got wolves and got sheep, but it's got a sheepdog that's protecting the sheep from the wolves. And the sheep don't even like sheepdogs. Have you noticed that? Sheep hate sheepdogs because they, they do the same stupid stuff that wolves do. They're canines, for crying out loud. They have teeth, and they bark, and they nip at them, and they're always controlling, and they hate that. But if we had more sheepdogs, we wouldn't have a big problem with wolves, would we? As a matter of fact, if the entire yard was filled with sheepdogs, we wouldn't have a wolf problem at all. We have a wolf problem because we have all these sheep and no sheepdogs. Seriously, Troy has been spending weeks with you to get an accurate view of what Christianity is, what it is not, what the other worldviews are and what they are not, so that you can become a sheepdog. Because if you're a sheep, we have to protect you. He can't be here to protect you in every conversation you have in the next three weeks. But he can get you started, turn you into a sheepdog, and then you'll protect yourself. That's the goal. That's why we do this. That's why we do a series like this. We're trying to help you see the difference and why accuracy matters. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we want to be used by you. We don't want to offend, but we know your message is offensive at times. So please, Father, let the truth be what it is, but help us not to add to the offense by our own, I don't know, our own pride, our own obstinance, our own selfishness, these things get in the way of the gospel, but help us to hold on to what is true so we can make a case for what we believe. We want to be sheepdogs. Help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone here says, amen.